0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, of course, we are all trying to find ways to make productive use of our time during these days of isolation. Uh, And it seems that former welterweight contender Marcus Maidana is no exception. Uh, The Argentine who forever carved himself a place in boxing fans hearts by handing adrian bronner his first loss uh, also gave floyd mayweather fits in uh, their first fight and he's now comfortably retired and getting progressively wider based on recent reports um but he's apparently been uh, trying his hand at making jewelry uh, according to fight news Maidana recently posted on his instagram a photo of a necklace that he made out of a tooth and not just any tooth but reportedly one that he says he knocked out of mayweather's mouth. So uh, there you have it, Eric. I was thinking it could be the perfect gift for Robin Raskin <laughs> to ease tensions when we get to about day 192 of the lockdown. Robin, I'm sorry about everything. Um, but I love you, and here's Floyd Mayweather's tooth <laughs> on a gold chain. How, how, do you think that's going to work? Uh, you know, it might in theory. It's it's a lovely piece. Um, but
2: uh, I already bought her uh, an amulet built from the cap from the tube of preparation H that Oscar De La Hoya used the night he fought Oba Carr. So, uh, all, all set on that front. I would I would have to say.
1: Plus, uh, plus you've got that lifetime subscription to Victor Ortiz's face lube. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh no, you know in the pandemic that's really hard to come by uh, uh, they're, true, they're right the shelf, everywhere you look. Like yeah. Flour, yeasts, Victor Ortiz's face lube is crazy. It prob yeah. it probably
2: uh is a a solid disinfectant. Now, you dip your hands in the face loop and uh <laughs> I don't know. Might this work. So, um maybe. i have to say i i don't remember floyd losing a tooth in those no, fights it. okay i was gonna say am i am i forgetting that moment did it happen but uh if, if it did happen you're forgetting it also so
1: yeah no it might be just a good way of you know bidding up the price you know and the, oh, no right. no let's this, this no, just the berlin wall mate honest <laughs> but you just picked it up out of your backyard no 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 berlin wall mate yeah
2: see, i don't even, of... i don't i don't get the reference but uh, i'm sure you're well, i'm just making it up like, oh of, all right it sounded of... it sounded like something you'd taken no. from uh some british thing i'd never seen
1: okay well there were there were bits of berlin wall cropping up all over the place for a while that may or may not have actually been from the berlin wall just get a little bit of concrete spray a bit of graffiti on it and there you go there's your berlin wall Sell yeah. it for a fortune.
2: listen enterprising uh business ideas uh can be found at all times in all different ways, uh, True, and uh, so yeah, and you certainly whether this was really made from Floyd's tooth or not, God bless Marcos Maidana, he is he is the best. Uh, all right, so, so so we know how Marcos Maidana is passing the time during quarantine. Uh, as for us, uh, when we're not podcasting, uh, we're giving our televisions a workout. So uh, I ask you now, Kieran, uh, since last we spoke, what you've been watching
1: uh so uh, i i sort of have gotten away from everything a bit last week but uh, i've been back on the old shits creek wagon as it were uh okay. ripping through uh season two okay uh, and i also watched a um at a friend's urging a 2005 showtime movie of a stage musical reefer madness the musical oh. starring one of uh, our mutual favorites uh, kristen bell as well as, among others, Steven Weber, uh, Alan Cummings, who's having the time of his life, uh, Anna Gasteyer, various others. So it takes the old, like infamous 1930s, I think, anti-marijuana real called Reefer Madness, Mm. and and spins it into like an entirely over-the-top musical, which includes our beloved Kristen Bell turning from a super-innocent ingenue schoolgirl who hasn't yet finished reading Romeo and Juliet, but is pretty sure that it all ends up happily with Romeo and Juliet marrying and having kids. (laughs) And then, well, just one toke, and, well, she turns into an entirely different kind of person, if you know what I mean. Hmm. So very campy very very culty uh totally recommend it if you just want a um uh, a, a hilarious sort of couple of hours or so. Okay. So that's what I've been up to. How about yourself?
2: Well, uh, first, I'll, I'll just say uh, about that. Uh, I've, I've never seen any version of uh, Reefer Madness, but maybe maybe I should. Um, it's, I, that l- lumps in very much with Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I've also never seen, but I, I feel like they're sort I of... I know a, every word of
1: Rocky Horror Picture Show.
2: Yes, yes, I, I know you do. And and they, are sort, they have sort of a similar appeal, yes. no? Yes, okay, yes. that's what I thought. Uh, but the other thing on that is that uh, of all the various... Famous people that I've uh, been told here and there over the year that oh you kind of remind me of this person or that person. The most insulting one I ever got was Alan Cumming. I don't know. <laughs> you you laugh in a way that suggests maybe you see it a little bit.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought about <laughs> it, but now that you mention it,
2: yeah, I don't like th- I don't like that one very much. Uh, on the on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, <laughs> one time someone told me I really reminded them of Rob Lowe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna end with that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, so uh, yeah, in terms of what I've been watching, I actually am. Back on on one TV binge, uh, again, uh, about six weeks ago, I finished season one of Justified, and now I have started season two. Um, it's all perfectly fine so far, but I have yet to figure out what people love about the show. Um, supposedly, season two is where it goes from good to great, so... We'll see. Uh, Life is short and there's a lot to binge. So uh, if I'm not in love with the show by the end of season two, that might be it for me. Um, But we did do a a few family movies this week once again, and there is one that's worth highlighting, Kieran. Uh, When is the last time that you watched
1: Top Gun? Oh, gosh, a long time ago. I have a friend who is obsessed with it and has at least an annual viewing, which I've never I've yet to go around and be a part of. And he was, as you can imagine, getting incredibly excited about the release of the The new Top Gun movie. Yeah. And and is I think for him, it is the worst part of all of this. (laughs) Well, he will not want to listen to this
2: podcast. Uh, because. Um, so I, I saw the movie twice in the theater. Uh, loved it. Uh, I guess I was 11 at the time. Uh, saw it again when it came out uh, on video way back in the 80s. But I, I don't believe I've seen it as an adult. Now I have. And I feel confident in saying that movie is pure trash. It is really <laughs> bad. It, it's great from a perspective of uh, MST 3 king it, you know? Like, uh, right. like, like, we had a good time amusing ourselves by making fun of the dialogue and everything about the beach volleyball scene and all the constant, profusive sweating by every character, uh, the worst kissing ever captured on film, uh, Val Kilmer's breathing, uh, and re- everything else, really. Um, but... It is a really, really bad, cheesy 80s movie that doesn't hold up. It's basically the Rocky Three of fighter pilot movies. Oh, wow. So a uh, huge thumbs down from the Raskins on Top Gun. My daughter didn't even finish the movie, uh, and my son did finish it, but acknowledged that he thought it sucked. So, uh, so
1: it's kind of like it did or did not take their breath away?
2: <laughs> uh, uh, it took something away from them. Their, ti- <laughs> their time that they'll never get back. No, that, that not Val- it's
1: not quite as catchy in, the, in a song, to use that phrase,
2: right. I guess. But. Yes, certainly,
1: uh, certainly not Val Kilmer's greatest movie performance. We know what I think that is. Uh, wait, I'm racking. Oh, yes, Tombstone. Okay, there we go. I had to i had to think for just a second there. But uh, um, yeah,
2: he's usually a pretty good actor. It seemed like sort of an intentional bad acting almost in parts of this movie. Like he was trying to do something with the character to amplify the absurd cheesiness of Iceman uh so I don't I don't want to call him a, a bad actor but there are moments in this where one one could reasonably think he was a bad actor <laughs> uh all right so uh Top Gun uh, may have sucked in my opinion but let's talk about something I watched uh, that I didn't think sucked, and something you watch too. Uh, the first two episodes of the Netflix series Monzone, also titled Monzone, A Knockout Blow. Uh, I've seen both titles listed. Uh, there there might be some spoilers here, but really there's not much to spoil since it's based on a true story. Uh, certainly uh, we haven't seen any crazy plot twists so far, uh, so I don't feel like we have to bury this at the end of the podcast. If you really want to avoid knowing anything about it, I guess fast forward a few minutes right now. But I have a handful of comments, but first, just, just my my overall impression is I'm into it. I, I kind of wanted to keep watching beyond the first two episodes, and I had to stop myself. Um, it's not like best dramatic series, Emmy worthy or anything. but I'm drawn in. I'm intrigued. I'm enjoying the dual timeline approach so far. Um, for those who aren't watching along with us, I should explain that it follows older Monzone starting with the night Alicia Muniz dies. And also younger Monzone, starting in his teen years. So before I go any deeper, uh, what what's your top line reaction? are you Are you liking it through two episodes?
1: Yeah, you know, but you you watched those first two episodes before I did, and and you'd said something to the effect of, wow, i could i'm I'm you know I had to sort of stop myself from watching episode three. I'm pretty into it because mm-hmm. I wasn't entirely sure at first. And exactly the same as you. I I watched those first two episodes and was definitely like, okay, this is a fun project. I could definitely be into this. I want to see where this goes. So yes, the top line, very much the same as you.
2: Okay, all right. So, And then I just have a, a handful of comments and observations. Uh, feel free to, uh, to jump in on any of these. Easily, my favorite stuff so far was the stuff with Amilcar Broussa in the gym with young Monzone. Mm-hmm. The big speech he gave him about dedicating himself, the locker room pep talk before Monzone's pro debut, which is how the second episode ends. I, I'm, I'm loving that, and I feel like all the gym stuff feels pretty realistic mm-hmm. to this point. I will note, uh, while... Both of the actors playing Monzone do resemble him. Neither actor is as handsome as the real Monzone, Mm. right? Uh, Right. You know, Carlos Monzone was a fairly handsome guy. They went a little uglier with the actors, which is the reverse of how Hollywood usually works. You know, you you go from Mickey Ward to Mark Wahlberg, typically, or or (laughs) Reuben Carter to Denzel Washington, you know? And here here I feel like Monzone was not done justice in the same way. Um, And the last thing that that I jotted down... uh, I'd bet anything you had the same thought as me. There was a lingering shot of a ceiling fan in the house where Alicia Muniz
1: died, and I immediately thought, (laughs) well, this
2: director is a fan of Twin Peaks.
1: You know, I completely missed that. Otherwise, I would have been all over it. Okay. (laughs) Um, But no, unsurprisingly, and this is in so many other things, my my sort of notes are very similar. Um, I I did like the – it's not the first – uh, a tv series or or movie or whatever to employ the multiple timeline sort of technique or the the, the narrative flashback but i enjoy right. the way they're doing it i like the way i wasn't sure what i would expect I, I guess i went into it thinking just assuming that it would be your standard kind of biopic and I, and i hadn't anticipated that the main narrative line would be the alicia muniz apparently, investigation, at least through the first couple of couple of episodes, and we're doing the flashback to Monzone uh, as a youngster. And I did note that particularly I thought that the younger Monzone had that kind of brooding element about him that reminded me very much of the real fighter. Uh, I also made the note that I quite like those gym sequences. I thought that the sparring felt... Uh, quite realistic. The fact that it was basically a lot of heavy breathing and just desperately trying to catch your breath after just (laughs) one basic sparring session. Um, And yet nothing fancy about the about the gym at all. Um, The sort of unsmiling show me what you've got uh, a trainer in the gym. It just it just all felt quite real. Uh, I also definitely like the the way in which in the the, the more modern, if you will, the, the mature, the Alicia Muniz the timeline the, right. it conveys quite effectively, but without bashing you over the head, the way in which the famous and especially very famous, highly successful athletes are frankly treated differently than the rest of us, yep. even when they're accused of what he's accused of you could just see there's a certain deference with which almost everybody holds him um until in very oj-esque fashion he starts talking way too much and showing way too many <laughs> things and it's always like you better shut the hell up or i'm out of here um so yes so really quite enjoying it i had the same uh, feeling as you like you know what i can sit down and and easily rip through a few episodes of this uh when we first started talking about this uh we thought there were going to be 10 episodes there are 13 so should we up our pace a little bit, seeing as we're enjoying it, and do three episodes for the next couple of weeks?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that makes sense. We'll we'll go we'll go with three episodes uh, for for the next podcast. So, the, so that'll bring us through episode five when we discuss it again.
1: Exactly. Excellent. And uh, yeah, do watch along with us if if you're so inclined, and let us know your thoughts. All right, uh, we have a few news items to discuss later on in this podcast, uh, but we are focusing on one major topic this week as we continue our look back at some classic fights, and particularly uh, classic Cinco de Mayo weekend fights. Uh, This one is special. Uh, It's one that's certainly close to my heart. It's one that continues to top the lists of best fights of the 21st century. It's one that re-aired a week or so ago on Showtime and is still available on all Showtime's on-demand platforms. When I tell you that our guest this week is Joe Goosen, you'll know exactly what fight I'm talking about. May 7th, 2005, Diego Corrales versus Jose Luis Castillo. Yeah, uh...
2: At at a bare minimum, one of the very greatest fights of modern times. That's like the the easiest undersell yeah. I can give it. Uh, let's set the stage a bit. Corrales entered the contest with a record of thirty nine and two, thirty two knockouts. Castillo was fifty two six and one with forty six knockouts. Each brought one lightweight alphabet belt into the ring, plus Castillo had the ring magazine championship at 135 pounds. Castillo, from Sonora, Mexico, spent the early stages of his career under the radar, learning the trade as a sparring partner of Julio Cesar Chavez and then emerged on the championship scene with an upset majority decision win over Stevie Little But Bad Johnston in 2000 and took a leap to the next level in terms of respect and recognition with a pair of close decision defeats to Floyd Mayweather with many insisting to this day that he deserved to win the first fight. In addition to Johnston and Mayweather, the previous five years had seen him notch impressive wins against the likes of Cesar Bazan, Juan Lascano, Joel Casamayor, and Julio Diaz. And he had the reputation of being a strong, skilled, suffocating man to fight. And I'm reminded of the column I wrote for Max Boxing the week leading up to the fight. My column angle was that no matter what happens in this Corrales fight, Castillo, the ring champ, had already put together a Hall of Fame resume. Mm. That's how highly I regarded him
1: at the time. Wow. Yeah, and and in the other corner, uh, Corrales was something of a fan favorite. Uh, he, he had torn to the 130-pound division uh, with wins over the likes of then undefeated Roberto Garcia, Derek Gaynor, Justin Juco. Remember Justin Juco? Yeah. Uh, Angel Manfredi uh, to earn himself a 2001 unification bout against Mayweather. And back then, I think it's a measure of the of – the extent to which Mayweather still had to completely fully establish himself and the regard in which Corrales was, was held, that there were plenty of people ready to put money on Corrales in that in that unification fight. But obviously, uh, Mayweather was imperious that night, arguably still the greatest night of Floyd Mayweather's ring career, uh, dropping Corrales five times en route to a 10th round stoppage. Uh, Corrales was furious with his corner led by his stepfather, uh, Ray Woods, for stopping the fight. Um, and when he later hooked up with this week's guest, uh, Joe Goosen, he told him he would kill him if he ever threw in the towel. Uh, sounds familiar, actually. I believe we've heard <laughs> a fighter say that recently. Um, Corrales spent a couple years out of the ring after serving time for domestic assault. Um, his next attempt at a world title ended with a stoppage loss to Casamayor after an ill-fitting mouthpiece caused a terrible gash that was breathing profusely. Basically, yeah. this hole through his upper lip. It was just terrible. Um, he avenged that loss in a rematch and then stepped up to lightweight, where he took a belt from then-unbeaten Asselino Freitas to set up the clash with Castillo. Yeah, these were pretty clearly the two best lightweights in the world at the time, with
2: with Mayweather having moved up in weight. These were the two best fighters left. This was for the legit championship of the division. It was a fight that didn't really cross over into the mainstream, at least not beforehand, Um, but it was a fight every hardcore fight fan was locked in on as a can't-miss. As we've talked about before, you were ringside for this at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. Uh, and I know, because we've discussed it, that you watched it again when it re-aired on Showtime the other night. I'm curious, had you watched the fight in its entirety in between those two occasions? And on re-watching it this most recent time, did anything leap out at you as being substantially different or better than you remembered it?
1: So I don't think that I had watched the whole fight since 2005. I think when I got home, I don't didn't often watch fight broadcasts of fights for which I was ringside. I know that this was an exception. I know that right. you know when Showtime premiered <laughs> it, I definitely went back and rewatched watched it again. I've watched the tenth round obviously multiple times uh, since then. Just when one needs a bit of inspiration and violence, it's just easy to call up the tenth round. Um, but I don't recall rewatching the whole fight. Uh, at least not for a long time, and quite possibly since 2005. Um, in many ways, it was much as I had remembered it. But, th- but mm. the one sort of big exception was, was Diego's performance. And, and in my head, um, Castillo had been clearly in the ascendant as they entered that climactic 10th round. And, and, but the memory can play funny tricks. And you know, my recollection was that Corrales was starting to look a little ragged in spots in the round or two before that. And I know that, and watching it again, I know that in the commentary, like Al made a brief reference, I think in like round, Al Bernstein made a brief reference in I think about round nine that looked like Corrales was getting a bit tired or something. But but I'm not at all sure that that was true. I I mean, I do feel that Diego got the better of the first six rounds. Um, Seven, eight, and nine were all close. Um, But watching it again this time, I still had – I had Diego up on the cards through nine, and I thought rather than it being a case of Castillo clearly having some momentum, you know, maybe he closed the gap based on the first six rounds, but those rounds were close. I think it was still a fairly nip-and-tuck affair. I I don't know if the image of Diego going down so hard in the tenth round had affected my memory of how he'd been just prior to that. But um, I guess the one thing that I hadn't fully appreciated was that it still felt, to me – like a 50-50 fight going into that tenth round. Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely. I I had Castillo up five to four on this uh, okay. on this rewatch, uh, but I did give uh, Corrales that ninth round. Uh, although I, I like you said seven, eight, nine, they were all like, boy, I don't know who the hell to give this round to. Um, so yeah, it was certainly a fight that that. I would agree. It seemed very 50-50 until what happened in the 10th happened in the 10th. Um, I remember exactly where I watched the fight the first time and who I watched it with, and I know I watched it again the very next day and a couple more times over the next few weeks and months, but... I'm pretty sure that prior to this replay last week, I hadn't watched this fight in its entirety in at least 10 years, if not all the way back to 2005 mm. or so. So th- this was fun going back and rewatching it, because while I know round 10 backward and forward, everything <laughs> else was a little fuzzy for me. What really stood out to me this time around, um, first, how much of this fight was fought at close range? Yeah, Almost all of it, really, yeah. just forehead to forehead or, or close to it, throwing almost everything with bad intentions. And then the other thing was the brutality of it from, from about the end of round six or so on, that's the round that ends with Castillo battering Corrales to steal what had been a close round. The whole rest of the fight from that point on just feels like one long, how much more can these guys take? You know, Um, a lot of fights have a round or two like that. And then it either ends or it slows down or whatever. But for a fight, this brutal to last 10 rounds, And remain this brutal throughout. That that just doesn't happen. Um, Now, going in, as I said, the hardcore fans had an idea what to expect. I think there was an expectation among us that it would be a good fight, perhaps even a very good fight. But I don't think anyone could have imagined quite what we ended up seeing. So walk me through the stages of, of watching the fight a bit. When did it start to become apparent to you and as far as you could tell to everyone else at ringside that it was in fact becoming a very good fight, then an excellent one, and,
1: and then an all-time great. Yeah, I think, and, and re-watching it reinforced my memory on this occasion. Um, in the, My feeling always was, it was evident from the f- first minute of the first round that it was shaping up to be at least a good fight. Yeah. Um, from the moment that they both stepped forward toward each other, and like you said, Velcroed their foreheads together, and, and off we went. Um, then the second through fifth rounds, made it clear that it was very good. Uh, and you know, you know it is round six, and I felt that six in my head, and again, I felt reinforced by rewatching it. six, seven, eight took it into excellent category um, before round ten took it into all time category and and um and I remember the eighth round in particular being outstanding. Um, by then, I feel we were all sitting ringside. This was, and I'm sure, you, you, I know you've had this experience. You must have had it at Gaddy Ward. When you start, you're looking around at everybody else and <laughs> and in between rounds and you're just giving each other this, could you believe what we're seeing kind of yeah. look. And by then that was definitely happening uh, by, by round I at, at the absolute uh, latest. And, you know, it felt as if, my recollection certainly, uh, I hadn't, I hadn't seen any such videos at the time that I recall, but subsequently have done. It felt... The the best sort of analog I can come up with is like a tsunami. You know when you watch these tsunami videos and you watch the water come up? You can see the water coming. Like, well, that's going to be a lot of water. And the <laughs> water comes up, and you're like, wow, that is a lot of water. Boy, at least there won't be any more. Oh, no, 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 the water's still coming. No, no. Oh, wait, no, there's still more water. There's still more. Wow, it's really deep. And he like, this is crazy. And that's kind of how it felt. It felt as if it just was wave upon wave upon wave. And like you said, a lot of a lot of really good fights they might start dramatically and eventually the guys slow down or something because they're beating the hell out of each other, or you just have that sustained period in the middle or something. But the violence increased, and it kept increasing, and it kept increasing, and that's unusual, <laughs> um, particularly when it's two-way violence like that. And and, and I think that was my f- recollection from being ringside was that it just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And then, of course, the 10th round came and then, well, that was as if like this in the middle of the tsunami, some tornado had appeared out of nowhere and somebody had (laughs) dropped an atomic bomb into the middle of the tornado (laughs) to end it all. That was the 10th round, just the suddenness of of how it went from 9 out of 10 to 15 out of 10 (laughs) was was just remarkable. I think just shocked everybody.
2: Yeah, I like the tsunami analogy and this was kind of like, If you're watching a tsunami video, but with the added enhancement of Julio Cesar Chavez, senior and junior, jumping (laughs) up and down, cheering as the tsunami overtakes them.
1: (laughs) Um,
2: But yeah, uh, you you mentioned uh, the the 10th. When we looked back at Floyd Mayweather, Oscar De La Hoya the other week, we asked each other what was the best round and what was the turning point of the fight. There's no point asking each other those questions for this fight. As great as the first nine rounds were, it is the 10th round that elevates the entire fight to another level. But I wanted to ask you about something you mentioned in an oral history that our friend Brian Campbell wrote for CBS Sports about whether had that 10th round not happened or or had it ended after the second time Castillo knocked down Corrales, whether we'd be talking about this fight in quite the same exalted terms. You questioned whether we would. After watching it again on Showtime, do you have any different opinions on that?
1: No, I think it's still valid, eh? Um, I mean, the 10th round overshadows previous nine um, by such an extent, even though those previous nine were terrific. You know, Brian offered when we were talking ab- about that, um, Rios Alvarado won as a, as a sort of analog of, of how Corrales Castillo might be considered without mm-hmm. that Diego 10th round comeback uh, uh, my immediate response was to say no that's the perfect uh, uh comparison Rewatching it I, I'm not sure maybe that's a smidgen har- harsh on the first nine rounds of Corrales Castillo although it's been a while since I watched Rio Salvarado one and that was <laughs> a hell of a fight so but but I think it's perhaps a fair comparison in in how long people would have been likely to talk about the fight it was It was one of those where people go, hey, remember Corrales Castillo? That was a hell of a fight. And if you'd seen it, you go, oh, that was a fight. I should go and watch that again. Um, As opposed to being referred to in the hushed reverential tones that that we refer quite rightly to Corrales Castillo now. But, you know, so many things have to come together just right to elevate a fight from the very good to the excellent and the excellent to the all-time great. And... And and that's why so very few fights are truly all time greats. But yeah, when they came out for that tenth round, this was already an excellent fight. Uh, But it was Diego Corrales' comeback that lifted this into the stratosphere.
2: Yeah, I mean the Rio Salvarado comparison is interesting. I think Castillo or Corrales Castillo uh, first nine rounds are greater than rios alvarado one but they're in the same ballpark so i think it's a good comparison even if this still would have been a little better and and you're right it wouldn't be uh it would just be sort of a wow that was a really great fight that we talk about on occasion um but yeah i mean if you take away the madness of the ending of, of corrales doing the unthinkable after looking for all the world like a beaten man 30 or 60 seconds earlier. It's a great fight. It's the fight of the year in 2005, but those last 30 seconds are essential to putting it on the short list for greatest fight ever. And let's be honest, that's true of any fight on that short list. If you cut out that fight's signature moment, then it's not quite so special. You know, without round nine, Gaddy Ward is also just a very good action fight. Uh, Without Jack Dempsey flying out of the ring, Dempsey Furpo isn't a classic and so forth. The ending is a huge part of what makes this fight so legendary. Uh, and and by the way, Tony Weeks called I would say probably the greatest stoppage ever in terms of, a it being at the absolute perfect correct moment, and b the degree of difficulty of identifying that moment, yeah. given how the fight was going to that point and how suddenly that pendulum yeah. swung. Um, and one last thing that I want to talk about that I think is a is a big part of the legacy of this fight. This is probably the last fight for which people passed a videotape around, lending it to all their Mm. friends. Hey, you got to see this. It it was the perfect storm for that, a fight that non-hardcore fans were not really aware of, so they didn't watch it live. On-demand wasn't really a thing yet, so that one hardcore boxing fan who taped the fight loaned it to his friend, who then loaned it to another guy, and eventually all the sports fans out there had seen this fight. 2005 was the year YouTube launched, uh, but it took a little while to gain steam. By 2006, the fight of the year was that Munchapur-Sithchatchewal fight that we all saw in like four separate 10-minute right. videos on YouTube. So, so 2006 was the year, I would say, the exercise of passing videotapes around started dying. Corrales Castillo was, was the last and maybe the best example of that way that people used to share great
1: fights. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's a really great thought. I hadn't thought about that. And and maybe even the fact that that it wasn't massively, as you mentioned at the, at the top, that it hadn't crossed into the mainstream and that in a sense it was like the secret of the boxing community that we yeah. wanted to share with everybody else <laughs> as well. Yeah. I, I seem to recall feeling afterwards again, as we'll discuss a little bit later on. It's 15 years ago. I'm old. My memory is not quite what it was. But I have this recollection of afterwards being in my hotel room and that night and talking to a friend in, in Alaska. And, and, you know, she asked the kind of like uh, ritual, not very interested. How was the fight? And, and I was raving. And I, I seem to recall saying something like, if you went into this loving boxing, you'd love boxing even more. And if you hate boxing, you're going to really hate it after watching this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And and it sort of had had that feeling about it. Anyway, look, there is plenty more that you and I can say about this fight, but nothing's going to come close to what our guests will have to offer. So let's go right to him. Uh, He's a man who had not only one of the best seats in the house, but honestly, whose own contributions uh, played a huge role in, in the way in which this fight is regarded, not just in terms of his tactics and strategy, but the worst that he said, um, that is, of course, Diego's trainer, uh, Joe Goosen. Uh, we're going to note in advance that I, I think as a consequence of all the strain on cell towers and Internet as a result of everybody being at home for the last month. And, and, and so uh, a couple of our calls recently have had their patchy moments. And you'll note that despite Eric's best efforts to 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 hide them, this one is no, no exception. But even with the occasional glitches during the call and missed moments, this turned out to be a fantastic interview. So let's go ahead and bring in now the one and only Joe Goosen. Joe, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast.
0: No, listen, this is a pleasure for me. It's breaking up the monotony. <laughs> so I'm happy to do it. I'm happy hey, listen, to do it,
1: I... um, Before we start and talk about that great fight, we'd like to ask you a question we've been asking all our guests uh, during these yeah. challenging times namely how are you mm-hmm. how is the family are you keeping safe and well
0: oh you know thank you for asking guys and, and before i answer that i just wanted to tell you uh I, I really appreciate you guys you guys are well-studied men and you're men of accomplishment you both of you guys have written books or authors and you, you delve into a lot of subject matters and i, I really respect you guys for that i wanted to I wanted to say that first before I answer your question. You. And uh, you. uh, we're doing great out here. Thank, thank God. And, and I happen to be in a small little community out here in California. It's not, I'm not in the big city. And it's a little bit different atmosphere out here. It's a, it's a very small community. Let's put it that way. So, it's you know, it's kind of uh, laid back. I, I haven't spent this much time at home since I don't know when. You know, I'm normally in the gym six days a week. And, uh, so it's getting a little boring for me, but thank God everybody's doing well. My, my, my daughter is a nurse at uh, one of the local hospitals here at Los Robles Mm -hmm. and she's a a critical care nurse. And so, you know, they've, they've been doing their job over there, but, uh, it's kind of quiet in, in the County I live in. So, um, I, I may be a little bit far removed from where some of the other stuff is going on, but, uh you know i, I just think god the thing is starting to slow down a little bit from yeah. from what i understand i hope that's true yeah
2: yeah and certainly a huge uh, thank you uh, from from us and our listeners i am uh, going to assume as well uh, to to your daughter for the for the work that she's doing
0: thank you so much i really appreciate that i really wow. do and i i'm proud of her she's she's a, you know, those nurses oh, well, let me tell you they're hard work they really are unbelievable yes they they have their hands full right now that's for sure yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I do think. I do appreciate it and I'm gonna pass it on to her, okay?
1: great thank you please do that please do um let let the switch back shall we to happier times times when we were all able to hang out and sit next to each other and get covered in sweat and blood and not think anything of it (laughs) um uh, let's go back specifically uh may 7th 2005 at the mandalay bay in las vegas um when you had diego going up against jose luis castillo and and the consensus certainly you know i i was there and you know obviously we were looking forward to it being a good fight and i think the consensus from a lot of us ringside going in was that Castillo would try to smother Diego and work him over on the inside. And that Diego's best bet was to jab and box and move and turn him from the outside. And and it seemed pretty clear from the outset that either that was never your plan, or if it was the plan that Diego had absolutely no intention of following it. So which was it?
0: No, I I, uh, to to many people's surprise. That was our plan. Um, and, and and for various reasons, uh, if you want me to expound on it a little bit, sure. Uh, look, you know, like most coaches, you're going to do a little studying before you, you you dream up a game game plan. And you know, I, I had watched uh, some of Castillo's fights, and the, including the Mayweather fight, and I said to myself as I'm watching, I go, Mayweather cannot get away from this guy, mm. right? He couldn't, he was, he was on top of Mayweather all night. And I, and then I said, I said, well, who's got the best legs in the business at that time? It was Mayweather who had the most superior boxing skills in the business. Mayweather. Okay. Okay. Um, and I go, and he couldn't with all of that in his possession, he's, he still couldn't get away from Castillo and and his, and his consistent attack. Then I look at Diego. I say, "Okay, let me see the fights Diego has ever boxed in and moved backwards." Oh, that's right, zero. <laughs> 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 you know. So I'm going. Okay, so what? Am I? Would I be expected? Would I? Do I? Am I comfortable and confident that Diego could all of a sudden I could turn him into a, a, a slick, moving, backward boxer counterpuncher? I don't, I don't think that was reasonable to think that I could. Although we held some advantages in height and reach, it still didn't matter. See, because if you look at Diego's fights, he's, uh, he, he, he's the type of guy that likes to press you. He doesn't like to back up. He's always looking to knock you out, okay? And take just take a look at any of his fights. He's always coming forward. Everyone else is backing up. The 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 thing is, is that very few people really didn't know how well Tito could fight on the inside. Now I, I knew because when the action took him on the inside, man, I mean he did some stuff that was just beautiful—double, triple hooks, you know, uh, five, six, seven punch combinations, just uh, you know, unbelievable on the inside. Even though he's tall and 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 he he would basically stand up on the inside. He wasn't a sit down guy on the inside, but I, I knew what I had and I and I believe I knew what I had to do here. We were not going to win this fight backing up. Right. Um on the other hand, I also knew that if we did try to box him uh, and you do not punish and and you, and we and let's say we weren't able to punish Castile early, he would have a lot left in his gas tank later on because he just kept he was like Trinidad. He just kept getting stronger and stronger as the fight goes on. Um so I, I i two things I came away from it we' we've got to submarine him, we've got to catch him off guard. I guarantee Diego, I said Diego, I guarantee he's got tall guys up in his camp right now, and they're boxing him. They've got him boxing him. And you know when you're chasing somebody around that's moving backwards, the amount of actual action time is is a lot uh less. So in other words, if you're training and you're, it's like, okay, I'm going to step up and press you. I can see you then you're going to move away. Takes time to follow you around. I said that type of pace is what he's probably working on right now. So I said, we've got to submarine him right off the bat, catch him off guard. The element of surprise, you can fight on the inside. Yes, he can too, but he's not going to be prepared for how we're bringing this fight to him. Guaranteed. In terms of conditioning and other things, he's going he's gonna to be preparing for a different type of fighting. So I, I just felt the, the element of surprise, the fact that Diego could fight on the inside was not known to back up and box. Mayweather couldn't get away from him. I don't think I was left with any choice except for what we did.
2: Oh, yeah. All right. Fascinating. Well, we want to go through a lot of this fight with you, Joe, chronologically focusing on some of your comments to Diego in the corner between rounds. Uh, So so round one gave us the first sign of the kind of fight it was shaping up to be. Uh, Al Bernstein said uh, on the broadcast, this is going to be a great fight. Corrales is making it have to be a great fight. Uh, And uh, after that first round, here's some of what you said to Diego. You said, you got to make sure that shit is buried every time you start banging with him. That left hook is working good on the inside and the body shots are working good. Faint a little bit more with that jab. He's looking to counter your jab with that right hand. He's going to come with that eventually. So two questions for you. Um, do you recall if you were generally pleased with how things were going after one round? And more specifically, what did you mean by make sure that shit is buried. Is that about tucking your chin or or something else that uh, as a non-fighter or trainer, I don't know quite what you were saying.
0: No, you were right there. You were right. Your instincts were right. Yeah, when I was saying that, see, because you have to work under a really, really tight package, Mm -hmm. okay, of arms, elbows, hands, chin, shoulders, when you fight somebody like Castillo, because he can thread the needle. See, the guys at the top of this game like that you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Where other guys, you can give them opportunities, either hey, they're not quick enough, savvy enough, or, or what have you to get to, or to act like it, uh, enough to get to those openings. And then you get to the top, and then you get guys like Corrales and Castillo, like that night. Any opportunity they had, they would capitalize on. And if they, there weren't opportunities, they would do things to open you up. See, So in other words, you go around and then up the middle something like that, touch the side, go up the middle real quick while your your reflexes are dealing with the, the side shot, you know, you try to touch and go. Um, and and Castillo was great at that. Corrales was great at that. So, yeah, definitely had him keep the package tight. We worked on that really hard in the gym. And then as far as the, the jab was going, that was very necessary. But we also, I went in there. After studying the tape, and I knew that there were two things that Castile did really well that you had to watch out for. He did everything well, but two things were, it was kind of like his go-to pitch. One of them was you throw the jab, he makes a little dip to the right and comes back. It's, it's an old-school uh, uh, maneuver, but he did it quite well. He'll slip the jab and come back over the jab with the right hand. A lot of fighters do it, but he did it extremely well. So that was what we wanted to watch out for. Uh, it fell short. Castillo tried it a few times, and he kind of abandoned that move for most of the fight. He stuck with other things. Uh, then his other move was to stick the jab in your belly, then faint the jab to the belly, and hook to the head to get you to bite on it. Try to move your right hand down to parry the jab. Well, knowing this, I told Diego, we've got to keep it tight. You cannot bring the hand down from your face to block a jab to the body. You've got to either take the jab to the belly Use your elbow to block it or close up the middle by just keeping your hands real tight. So that was a big, I mean, they sound like really non-essential things to have to work on, but they're really the most important thing, some of the fundamentals. And I think with the two great moves that Castillo had, which that move finally got Diego in the 10th right. round, if you look right. at him. Yeah. So so the, the two moves I was worried about, one he abandoned, one he never gave up on, And it eventually paid off for him, but it took 10 rounds because Diego never bit on that hard. He never brought that hand down low to his waist to block the jab, which is what got him in trouble. And the more distance, the more likely that shot could score. So there was another reason why I wanted Diego to always close the gap because actually you're safer on the inside with a guy like Castillo if you have the skill to keep up with him. Okay. So, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, that's, that's what I meant by that, but okay. good call. I've, I've never, <laughs> I never really realized what I'm saying as I'm saying it, <laughs> Right. because how can you plan for that? It just, it's what you see. And then you mm-hmm. go with it when it goes back to the corner. Right, right. Th- that's one that's a thing. good question. Nobody, nobody, nobody's ever thrown that by me, Eric. So that was a good one. I won't say.
2: Well, we might we might have a few more you've never heard before by the time this interview's done. Uh, I,
0: well, see, that's that's what I get for doing guys that write books and do a little research. Okay. That's
1: that's
0: All funny. right.
1: Okay. Um, there's one other thing that Castillo was starting to do quite well early on. You know, rounds two and three is when the fight is really sort of exploding into action, and, and Diego was, you know, you mentioned how he would be able to throw like sequences of punches on the inside and it was beautiful, beautiful stuff. But early on as well, Castillo was actually having some good success landing some uppercuts on the inside that were, that were jolting Diego's head back a bit. And at the end of the third, you said to him, the only thing he's catching you with a little bit is that uppercut, uh, right? When you go to the left hand of the
0: body. So
1: how concerned were you at that, at the success that Castillo was having there with that uppercut?
0: Well, look, I mean, as well as Castillo was having uh, success with the, the right uppercut, See, I was really a counter shot Diego and you teach it in the gym. you never want to stop your combination, uh, with the left hook, of the body, because, um, that's what happens. You can get countered on that same side. So if you touch my right elbow, like Diego would touch his right elbow or try to get to the liver or around that elbow area before you can pull that hand back, it's like a trigger. You push the button on my elbow that makes me react to an uppercut. That's, that's something you teach guys. So that was working for him. I'm not going to deny that. But again, I thought that we did so much damage. Yeah, Castillo had uppercuts, but we were nailing him with combinations that mm-hmm. first five rounds. I thought we did what I wanted to do, which was soften him up. We mm-hmm. buzzed him, man. I forget. Maybe it was the fourth round where we hit him with a left hook, and it was right towards the end of the round. And and he wobbled um, fourth, fifth round. I can't remember what it was. But, you know, there was so much action. I thought we dominated the first five rounds in a sense where I thought we minimum took three of the first five, minimum. Um, When I say dominate, I think that because we caught him off guard, if you look at Castillo, when he goes back to the corner, they don't even know what to say to him in the corner because they had no idea we were going to do this. He, and you could hear the microphone open and him just breathing, <laughs> and it was like, uh, it was like, okay, we didn't expect this, and and uh, so we we fatigued him a little bit and banged him up a little bit early, which is exactly what I wanted to do. I knew it would be unlikely that we were going to knock him out early. Why? Oh, because maybe he had never been knocked out in sixty fights. You know, right? You know, oh, oh, that's right. He had never been knocked down in his life. Okay. <laughs> So I mean, the guy had a head like a mastodon, and he was very—he did—he was very—he was very blocky. He was a really solid, solid dude, and uh, man, he just—he was really badass. I mean, this guy, (laughs) what, what, what? I'm telling you, I've been in—I've been in the ring with a lot of fighters against really good competition, and this guy was—he was. frightening body puncher and a mm-hmm. tremendous puncher all, all around. So, yeah, so the first, I believe in the first five rounds, we got a nut licked to soften him up a little bit. Uh, and like I said, I knew it wasn't going to be, we, uh, we would have been lucky if we would have gotten a knockout, but we almost, we did in one of those early rounds he had, we, deal, we hit him with a little mop with a left hook, and it did, did that it. little on yep. his legs, you know, but the bell rang like five seconds yep. later. That would have been, that would have been a great opportunity. For us were there to have stopped him, had that happened a minute you know earlier, but it didn't, and he recovered and then went on to you know the and then the middle rounds were just huge tug of wars, you know.
2: Yeah. That's a perfect setup for for jumping to the, those middle rounds. Um, you know, as the fight continued, it, it was clear that this wasn't just a case of two guys throwing punches without much thought. These were two experienced, skilled boxers, but who were also trying to beat the hell out of each other. And so uh, it was around that halfway point that it was clear we were, we were settling in for a real battle of attrition. Uh, after the sixth, yeah. you told Diego... He's going to start putting on the pressure a little bit, but you got to suck it up right here. This is where it's going to separate the two of us right here. Was that your way of saying that Diego and Castillo had, had reached an inflection point in the fight where it was fairly even through six, and you kind of sensed the fight was going to be won or lost in the next couple of rounds?
0: Well, I didn't want Diego to slow down what we were doing. In other words, Castillo was coming on, and I didn't want him to let Castillo take the play away from us. Okay. Uh, I knew it was never gonna be a thing where we're just running roughshod over him. I knew it was always gonna be a tug of war. And that I expected, but I did I wanted to be on the end we were we were gaining more ground on him than he was on us. Right. So I knew it was gonna be tough in those rounds, but I also knew he needs at the end of the round to be looked at as the guy that won that round. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure there, that's pretty much what I was telling them there is we need to win these rounds. So it's going to get tougher. So you got to really step up and not give up any ground, even though he's, this guy was making a charge Mm -hmm. the deal. He was really making a charge in those middle rounds. Right. If that makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, and sort of following yeah. on from that, this was one of those fights where it just never stopped coming, right? Yeah. It was just building and building and building in waves, and you think, my God, this this is got to be as good as it's going to get, and then it just kept getting more intense and getting better and getting better. <laughs> and and, yeah. and at the end of round eight, I remember writing in my notes at the end of round eight, oh, my God, this is the round of the year, and it was for like four minutes. Um, <laughs> but at the end of that round, yeah. you sat down with Diego and you right. said, 9, 10, 11, 12, you've got four rounds. Do not stop on me. Do you understand? And I wonder if at this point, in a fight like this, you're now switching, maybe following on from what you said just now. You've given him what you can give him in terms of strategy. Right now, you've, this is a motivation job. Is that fair to say?
0: That's right. That, that's, it's not even clear, of course. Because, look, we had gone over instructions for months before this fight, drilling, sparring bag where you name it we you know we went over all the incidentals and 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 the fact is that at a certain point to say hey throw another left hook down you know that just doesn't cut it right you know because now you're in a fight where both guys are letting loose um and it it was five star quality stuff this was no sloppy delivery systems from either guy and their defense um as many times as these guys got hit that night, it wasn't because they had a poor defense. It's because their offenses are so prolific and so dynamic that it's why they beat so many people, you know, but when you meet another guy who can deliver an offensive, uh, uh, uh offensive combinations like these guys can do, you're bound to get hit with something. Okay. In the just, no matter how good your defense is, just, we've seen too many great fights over the years to know that the greatest fighters get hit. Right. Okay. Uh in this particular fight and I gotta make this comment to you because, you know, I'm I'd like to hear you what your thoughts are. I mean Have you ever seen so many hard punches landed square on the jaws of two men (laughs) that are both knockout punchers that neither one of them really up until that 10th round really showed the effects of getting hit with those type of punches? In other words, how many guys would have gotten hit with just some of those early punches that they just brushed off like nothing? I think that would have knocked, some of those punches would have knocked out most guys. Yeah. But in this particular fight, they took punches. I've said this before, and again, defenses were great in this fight. But I've seen guys go through twenty, thirty fight careers that didn't get hit as much as these guys got hit in that one fight.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So not only were they getting hit, they were getting hit with solid, <laughs> um, technically perfect punches, and they weren't budging. Now, now, Castillo, we know has the one of the great chins of all time. So, yeah, um, it, that I found that amazing. So, um, you know, you comment on it to me. Do you? I mean, when you see those punches, I, I to tell you the truth. When I watch that fight, I go, "In how did these guys not get wobbled, dropped, stunned? You know, whatever?" And they didn't.
1: Yeah, and to me, it's not even just the power of the punches or whatever, it's, it's, it's the quality. It's that they would have their heads in each other's chest and then one of them would do a slight pivot and, and unleash a combination from an angle and would back the other guy up and then they it yeah. back together and the other guy would then do a pivot and and, and th- exactly. it was the skill level of the punches that was involved yeah. it was just as amazing as anything
0: yeah no it's it, it's like i say it's uh, that that was five star quality but um, <laughs> yeah so here we are we're in we're, we're we're in the middle of that battle and i did i i uh, it, you were right it was more of a uh, of getting diego just set on the fact that yeah, tough stuff's going to come your way right now, but <laughs> you got to fight, you know, you know, it's going to be, like I say, it's going to be, you know, somebody trying to, uh, you know, put their will on you and you're going to have to fight that off with your, you know, character and willpower and, uh, just keep trying to be the guy that's coming out, you know, as a, as the guy that looks like the winner of, of every succeeding round. Because I, you know, I mean, those rounds were close. They right. were, You know, it was such a back and forth that, you know, it was really kind of hard to determine who in some of those rounds, who won Uh, other rounds, it was obvious, you know, right.
2: Yeah. And, and you were talking about how incredible it was that these guys were able to walk through those punches. Uh, in the 10th round, finally, they stopped walking through the punches. The punches started having serious effects. That, that amazing 10th round, that's the round that, that elevated this fight from excellent to maybe the greatest fight ever. And there uh, right. are a lot of elements that made that round so incredible. One of them was your instruction to Diego after each knockdown, when the mouthpiece came out and you put it back, in. Most trainers would have advised their fighters to, to hold or move, but uh, you've said uh, famously, uh, iconically, really, you better fucking get inside on him now. Um, I assume that even with the knockdowns, you looked in his eyes and I guess saw someone who still had a chance, uh, but e- even so, how shocked were you at the almost immediate turnaround And and simply how did he do it?
0: you know, it's like anything else. You you have to know what you did in the gym Mm -hmm. to be able to push somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, You know if somebody had a lousy camp, maybe didn't give it 100%, you know, cheated a little bit on their this, that, or the other. What you're going to tell a fighter in the corner is going to be, you know, a lot of times is going to be based on what type of shape you know them to be in and what you put, what type of work you put into the training camp. Uh, This particular camp was, and I've done a lot of them, was probably in the top three to five of all time that I've ever had with with a fighter. It was that good of a camp. In terms of sparring partners, I got, you know, A, B sparring partners, five, four, five, six of them, many, many rounds. I knew what was coming. I really did. I really did know what was coming. I, I had no doubt it was going to be close to the battle we saw. it. Now, did I know it was going to have the ending? At? No, <laughs> I, I had no idea. But now that being said, you're right. Uh, you have like three options to tell a fighter that gets into trouble: if you get him back in the corner, or if you if you can't get him back in the corner, you're yelling right. at him, or like Diego, the mouthpiece came out. It's either hold, run. run. Or fight. I mean, right. what else can you tell? You know? <laughs> now, I've had other fights where I've told the guy to hold, or the guy to move until you get your head cleared up. And this is one of the rare exceptions where there was not even a question about what I was going to tell Diego in my mind. But that only happened because of what I observed. <laughs> you know, your observations will lead you to, to what you want to say and the background. So the background of the camp was definitely a deciding factor and then what I saw on the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I say, Diego went down ugly, but he got up strong. Mm-hmm. In fact, wh- what I really liked, what really gave me encouragement was second time when Tony Weeks, if we don't have Tony Weeks in that fight, it's not the classic it is, but when Tony Weeks brought him or when Tony Weeks decided to take the point away from him in the middle of the ring on the second mouthpiece incident, Diego was acting over his shoulder, chirping at him, you know, complaining. <laughs>
1: yeah. and
0: right. And I said, well, that's that's rude. Now, how much time do I have to observe that? Not very long. But my observations led me to believe Diego got up strong, so I saw that he physically got up strong. He didn't get up wobbly. Um, and then he was arguing with Tony Weeks about the point being taken away. So that was presence of mind that I liked. So that was all encouraging to me. I just will tell you, when you try to knock a guy out, it, 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 you can expend a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's almost, you know, it, it, it's not good being on the receiving end of someone and trying to knock you out. Especially <laughs> when you've gone down 12, go after a guy twice in one round and the guy keeps getting up, that can be exhaustive. Mm. And if you've got the willpower and the conditioning and the skill, you know, you can turn the tables on somebody by going back. We've seen it before. I mean, this is not the only five where guys to come back from knockdowns, mm. uh, but that being said, uh, you know, I, and, and let me sidetrack a little bit. I'll never forget when I was talking about couple years ago, when he told me when he fought, uh, Ruben Olivares. Okay. okay. Uh, he said when I had, he was, it was a really tough fight. I watched it. He goes, so I had him down. I was in the corner and I was looking at him on the ground. And I said, if he gets up, I'm done. I have nothing left. You see? So the fighters do think that, and they do feel that, that even though they were in control, the other guys down on the ground, they go, man, if this guy gets up and comes after me again, I don't know if I've got it in me mm. to do that again, or even, you know, win this round. I may be the vulnerable one. So those things can happen. As it turns out, uh, everything I observed with Diego, like I told you, he got up, he chirped up the uh, Tony weeks when he came back to the corner. Yes. Then at that point, when I gave him the piece of my mind, I gave him, uh, <laughs> he looked me directly in the eyes and it was an affirmative. It was an affirmative. Look, it was not a, a negative look. So, oh, yeah. um, he basically acknowledged that. And I, kind of gave him encouragement because if a fighter sees you panic, you know, that that can spread. So, um, yeah, I, I, so I just think it was a, it was a confluence of, you know, many things that went right instead of wrong. Um, after things went wrong, I should say, you know, <laughs> right. things went wrong. So, uh, you know, then what happened, the, you know, the rest is history, as they say, it was <laughs> an incredible, it was an incredible turnaround. And, and, but, but to the point of how the camp went, you saw how strong, look, to get up from those two left hooks. Wow. You know, one of them was a the left uppercut that put it on the second mm-hmm. one, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But while, while being run backwards with a combination um, uh, but to get up from those two, to be aware, to be lucid and, um, you know, that just in itself is incredible, but to be able to, um, muster up the energy and the strength to then after having your tank drained by that, those knockdowns, because they do, they drain your power to then be able to, you know, just, uh, get it all together get up from the ground and then apply really hard punching pressure. He was in that type of shape. Right. He was able to then carry out the the last bit of instructions there. And it was just too much <laughs> to be to handle. Yep. <laughs> he had right. just I think, I think he had just shot his entire arsenal in that tenth round, and then when he saw Corrales get up and come after him again, yeah, then like, wow, this guy, this guy's rising up again, and then now he's attacking me. I mean, that can be very disheartening. Yep, you know, and then you know, Diego caught him with some really hard shots. See, in the tenth round of fight, like when somebody's still punching that hard later in the fight, it's it's, it's quite unusual. So. I think Diego, just everything, you know, the, the stars uh, really aligned for him there, mm-hmm. but it was all because of hard work and then his talent and mm-hmm. determination and heart and presence of mind, all that played a, you know, so many factors that go into it, so many intangibles it's hard to just say one thing, but it taken as a whole, I, I think those are the reasons why he was able to get up and do what he did. Right. And,
2: and one factor that, that you mentioned, you noted that this fight would not have been as great if not for Tony Weeks, the the role that he played. What percentage of referees do you think would have stopped the fight after the second knockdown?
0: Well, let me ask you a question if I might real quick. Okay. Do you think that, that do you think that that fight could take place today?
2: You know, it's it's funny. I've heard that sort of that sort of train of thought of like that that fight gets stopped today, sort of under the the notion that uh, fights are stopped quicker now. And I feel like that's kind of something that people have been saying for for generations, that it's always getting stopped quicker. And I think there's some truth to it. But I, I kind of think if you have the right patient ref, a guy like Tony Weeks, See, that is the the kind of ref who's willing to like give a count and see the shape a guy is in at the end of that count in this case it it was fairly clear that diego was still in control of his faculties. so i'd say tony weeks today wouldn't stop that fight either but there are some refs from all eras who would have that that's my take on it
0: hey, look there's i i think the fact is that there's more scrutiny on guys when they get knocked down now, uh, you know, they're put through a, a more rigorous series of tests in the ring mm-hmm. after they get yeah. up. That's true. We agree with that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and and that's because the edict is out there that they want more scrutiny on guys that may or may not be hurt to the point where they should continue. So, um, that's what I'm saying. So, that would have been maybe a, a little bit different in today's market. And then the <laughs> other thing is, is that. I think Tony Weeks, and that's not all I'm I'm really zeroing in on was knocked out, although he handled that brilliantly. And I think most great referees can take one look at a fighter and know whether yeah. they should continue or not. Okay. No. Um, mm. I was just watching Millis Lane in action last night, watching some fight. I could forget which fight it was, hmm. but when the guy got knocked down, if I took the time, I could remember. But when the guy <laughs> got knocked down, I saw him. He just. He got up, he took his gloves to wipe them off on his shirt, and he looked in his eyes. Yeah. And and uh, boom, automatically, you know, sent him back out there. Um, but the point is, is, I think Tony Weeks really uh, did a great job throughout the whole fight. There were, you know, there were very few warnings and um, admonitions uh, dealt out by Tony Weeks. In other words he wasn't because these guys were hitting each other on the belt line all night. Now those could be called in today's market, low blows, okay? which they aren't. And and he just let them fight. He let them fight. There was, I don't know, a half a dozen breaks during the whole fight where he would break them (laughs) physically. So there was very little need for that. He stayed out of the fight. He he wasn't over-officiating it. And, um, he stayed on the perimeter and just did a great fight. He let the guys fight because, um, For the most part, it was a a clean fight. He only uh, uh, injected himself when um, uh, it was absolutely necessary, and then he didn't panic when it got hot and heavy in the tenth round. And um, he was cool as a cucumber. (laughs) He just he he, he just he just made all the right calls that night. It was it was one of those nights. It was one of those nights where, yeah, Castillo eventually lost, but it was. It, it, it was just a, it was a self-perpetuating fight. You know? yeah.
1: um, I, I felt in the aftermath, in the media room, obviously everyone was incredibly excited at w- what an incredible fight we've seen, but I also felt that we were all kind of in shock at just the sheer level of, of, of well, violence in there. And and like at one point, Gary Shaw well, said, we can never let these two guys fight each other again. And obviously that changed, but he meant it at the time. And... And I'm wondering
0: how well, how you felt. I'm going to take, take a little issue with that.
2: Okay,
0: um, I, Okay. now, Gary Shaw may have said that, but I believe I was the first one to say that if anybody suggests, and these are my words, and I'm not huh. positive, I like this, and I said it at the base, if anyone suggests that th- these two guys should fight each other again, Anytime soon is sadistic. Those were my yeah. words. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I, I really felt that. And you can remember, only a short five months later, these guys were back yeah. in the ring after that that brutal fight. Now, I mean, there's so many trilogies that took four or five years to to, yeah. to, to come about. This the second fight was like in five months. So I'm going to tell you, Diego still had, you know, black eyes after two months, you know, those things sometimes take a long time to go away. He was in, you know, he was back in camp, you know, a couple of months after that fight, which was just, I thought not cool. Um, but I, I made my, I made my, uh, opinion known at that press conference. And those were my words. I did say that. I don't remember Gary Shaw saying that I don't know why he would have because, he was Diego's promoter, and um, I mean, they were the one pushing for the fight after the rematch. Right. Which, yeah, you know. So I I, 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 I'd like to know if you have that actual quote. I never heard that, um, but I knew what was coming. I knew they were going to. On my way to the from from the ring, from the locker room to the press conference, I knew what they were going to say. Uh, I, I knew they were going to push these guys back into a fight right away, mm-hmm. and it was just uh, to me that was 30 fights rolled into one night. And because I knew they wouldn't be healed up. Look, they were both ended up in the hospital that night. Yeah. Uh, I heard Castillo was locked up for about a month in TJ in his house. And he was just, you know, for all reasons, physically, mentally, spiritually. And I, and I know what Diego went through. Diego was a total. It was like, he was in a car wreck. Okay. I was in the hot. And let me tell you something. I, I've seen a lot, you know, they you know, they run tests and, you know, they run uh, lab tests and, you know, you, you have to do certain things that the doctor needs from you and, believe me, I saw some things you know, that night I had never seen before in any post-fight examinations and mm-hmm. observations that I saw that night. Now, that being said, we were all in Diego's uh, hospital room that night and, of course, he was laughing and giggling and, you know, he was the winner, you know. So, even when you're hurt, you feel better than the guy that may be equally as hurt when you're the loser, you know? Um, so at least, like they like they said, at least he had that going for him. He was the winner, although he was in a hospital bed. And, yeah. um, you know, they wanted him to get out on the road not too far after that fight to start doing press and, you know, celebrate that whole thing. I was at home going, how the hell is this guy getting on the plane that's going to do these things? Uh, but he did it. You know, he trudged through it and, um, you know, made himself available. But believe me, he was hurt for a long time. And When he came back in the gym a couple of months, he still looked like he had battle scars. He was wearing the wow. battle scars from that fight. And I was like, wow, wow man, this is, this is exactly what I thought was going to happen. Wow. You know, that it was such a great fight. And they didn't expect Diego to win the fight. Let me just put it that way. So, uh, you know, they, they pushed for an immediate rematch, and that was just, I thought, sadistic Mm.
2: Um, neither Corrales nor Castillo are in the International Boxing Hall of Fame at least not yet speaking as objectively as you can uh, and I know you're not an entirely objective observer here but as objectively as you can Joe do you feel they should be in the Hall of Fame
0: (laughs) Uh, well I I, I can't uh, of course I'm going to say yes to, to both of those guys but I have a better point of view, uh, from my perspective, about Diego Always, I'm much more familiar with. Look, just in that little run that we had for that two and a half, three years, he loses to Casimiro. When I have Casimiro, we stop him in I think eight rounds, seven, mm-hmm. eight rounds, whatever. But we win that fight. So, so now the immediate rematch is for the same title. We go. Now I'm with Diego. I'm, I'm not in Casamayor's corner anymore. Right. They have the rematch, and I'm in the opposite corner. I'm in Diego's corner against my old fighter. Um, so we win a hundred pounds title. Then our next fight is against Freitas, 35-0 with 34 knockouts, undefeated, lightweight champion. We move up five pounds, and we stop him in 10 rounds. Okay, so we win another title um Then we go and have the match with Castillo. I think there were a couple titles on the line there. Yeah, I mean three, four, three, four titles and a half years. That alone should have, you know, put you in the Hall of Fame. I think, you know, on top of his record, on top of the guys that he's fought, on top of the great victories. He's, he, you know, when he stopped Robert Garcia, he stopped Manfred, he stopped a lot of great fighters. Yeah. I mean, pretty much everyone he fought, he stopped. So do I think Diego belongs in the international? Oh. Oh. Yeah, I I truly believe that. I definitely think, but I think that that day is going to come fairly soon. I, I you know, I, I just think it's, it's pretty hard to ignore uh, those two careers. I mean, Castillo, what did he have, you know, close to 50 knockouts and 60-something yeah, right. wins. I mean, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, definitely think they both belong in the international boxing hall. And, and, and you know, you have the press conference on Wednesday, you have, yep. uh, or maybe Thursday, then you have the win on Friday, and then you have the final Saturday. Well, at, at the press conference, I did say, and this may be a little off su- subject, but I did say this is a pay-per-view fight this is going to be a pay-per-view fight that you guys are getting on free tv which was showtime at the time yeah right and um but i just think getting back to the hall of fame thing i just think that um you know if it were just this fight alone yeah should should put you there but but i mean yeah so i'm hoping that both those guys get you know the recognition that They do deserve, uh, they were Hall of Fame fighters. I I don't know what more you can do in a career to say you belong in the Hall of Fame. You know, I'm sure at the end of the day, they're both going to end up in the Hall of Fame. When is the only question. Right.
1: Okay. right joe look we kept you much longer than we thought but it was just so interesting it was it's great to get your insight on on everything that went down it's always great to talk about that fight i i think it's the greatest fight that i will ever see or be ringside for yeah. and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and, and your memories on it um you will always be associated with it too and um i'm sure that's surprising yeah. for you yeah the,
0: the, listen am I'm, I'm very i'm overjoyed to be associated with that fight trust me and you never know how things are going to end up when you're going into a fight but it it, it uh, certainly surpassed anything i could have dreamt up so yeah i'm, I'm very proud to have been a part. yeah it's number one for keeping you know the show going and keeping uh the the the, the subject of boxing alive right now during this downtime and i appreciate both you guys you're both smart smart men, and you've accomplished a lot in your lives. And i, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm very honored to, to do the show with you guys. I'm, I'm proud of you guys as well. So thank wow. you very much. Thanks,
2: Thanks so much, Joe. Joe. You're a, a great trainer and a great ass kisser, and we like that.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, <laughs> and continued continue success. And hopefully we'll, uh, it won't be too long before I see you out on the road again.
1: Hopefully Absolutely. So. Hopefully so. Joe, thank you so very much. We
0: really appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care, guys. Take care. Ciao. Bye-bye.
1: All right. Look, apologies again there for the core quality at times. Uh, We hope we're going to be able to resolve that next week and beyond. Um, But so, Eric... (laughs) I mean, first of all, we told Joe, hey, let's chat for 15 to 20 minutes and (laughs) and off we went. So that was fantastic. (laughs) And that was all on him and being so willing to share his time. And and a couple of things really leapt out at me. First, it's a reminder that Joe Goosen is one of the kindest, most humble people in this sport. He will always go out of his way to praise others rather than himself. I mean, if you're saying nice things about us, you've <laughs> got to be really nice, right? <laughs> right. Um. Uh, and the secondly, I've, I've touched on this already. He does have me wondering now a bit about my memory at times, and particularly about my recollections of that post-fight presser. Uh, I don't. I have no idea where my original notes are. They were scrawled on some note, you know, one of those Mandalay Pay Bay reporters notebooks that they used to give out. And um, But I do have what I wrote up afterward, and I have Gary Shaw saying that line about how Corrales and Castillo shouldn't be made to fight again. But... Maybe I just transcribed it wrong, and it was Joe who said it. Or maybe he did say it, and then Gary thought, ooh, that's a good line, I should go and say it. I've got to say, Joe's version of events is the entirely more plausible one. But but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, my guess is that Joe probably said it first, and
2: Gary heard him and decided to repeat the sentiment at the presser, because it doesn't seem like the kind of thing you'd get wrong. Um, But I I would also add it doesn't really matter who said it. Uh, the, the fact <laughs> is that was a common sentiment right after yeah. the fight. Uh, and it faded over the next few weeks because there was money to be made. But exactly. but in retrospect, maybe five months was too quick a turnaround. I'll say I watched the rematch on Showtime last week, too. And A, Corrales was clearly not the same guy. And B... The action was still spectacular for the three plus rounds that it lasted. These guys were a perfect blend of styles. It's a shame that Castillo couldn't get back down in weight and they couldn't have a fair fight again. Um, And speaking of Castillo's weight, his failure to make weight repeatedly for the rest of his career really turned people against him. I think if he retires after the first Corrales fight, he's in the Hall of Fame right now. Mm. But he hung around and let people's memories and opinions of him get skewed. Anyway, uh, it is time for the news of the week. Only a few items to look at, and we begin with our usual bleak recap of COVID-19 impacts on people in the boxing world. We start with the very sad news that Eddie Cotton, a boxing referee from 1992 to 2014 and most famously the third man in the ring when Lennox Lewis beat Mike Tyson— Died from complications of the coronavirus on Friday at age 72. Truly awful. Yeah. Uh, also earlier in the week, New York Post sports photographer Anthony Kausi, who shot boxing matches among other sports, succumbed to the virus at the age of just 48. And lastly, Jimmy Glenn, famed cornerman and even more famed proprietor of Jimmy's Corner, just off Times Square in New York was admitted to the hospital after suffering from coronavirus symptoms, although fortunately the updates from his family have been generally positive as of this recording. But he's 89 years old, so we're certainly concerned, and and our thoughts are with him. Uh, Kieran, anything to add?
1: Yeah, like you said, just all very sad. I mean, Cotton, um, first-rate, very popular referee. You mentioned uh, Lewis Tyson. This fight's also included. Boy, he he was in the middle of some 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 heavy ones to deal with. Riddick Bowe, Andrew Galata too, mm. George Foreman, Shannon Briggs, um, Shane Mosley, Jesse James Lehar, Haseem Ratman, James Tony, Bernard Hopkins, Chad Dawson too. Um, uh, a native of uh, Patterson, New Jersey, he was inducted into the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame in 2008. Uh, New Jersey Boxing Commissioner Larry Hazard said uh, he was. This is just heartbreaking. He was just a very likable guy just an all-round great person. He's gonna be greatly missed. This just really saddens me. Um, similar sentiments around Anthony Cossie. Uh, I didn't know him, um, but I was struck by the immense outpouring of grief and love for him. I talked to um, Ed Holland about him a little bit. He shot on the ring apron alongside him many times in New York. So, uh, you know, so he was a real fixture at the Garden, loved shooting Miguel Cotto. At the garden um, you know and, and said that he'd been of real help and inspiration to both Ed and other photographers and and he said just as a little little snapshot if you will, of the kind of person he was, Ed said, one thing he taught me that stuck was he always went out of his way to take and share pics with everyone, people in the crowd, security cards, kids, and he'd make sure they always got those pics, um, which goes to show, I think, uh, an element of why so many people were so saddened by uh, by Anthony's death. And, and, and Jimmy Glenn, look, what can you say about Jimmy Glenn? Um, a laconic iconic presence uh an unflappable cornerman who would have been a beloved member of the boxing community anyway but in jimmy's corner he created uh something else a a remarkable place that so many of us know so well from our journeys to watching fights in 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 new york he of course lost his wife who really ran the place right to make sure that nobody was taking up precious space for too long uh uh, just a couple years ago we and we obviously hope that he can hang in there and recover um, on another note, um, the Deontay Wilder book of reasons I lost to Tyson Fury has added uh, some more pages, uh, more, most recently he revealed that he had had bicep surgery after suffering a tear on the left biceps in the fight with Fury. Um, I'm not sure if he knows, or we know exactly when that tear occurred, but Eric might it conceivably have made any difference had he not suffered that injury and, do you suspect this might be any kind of hindrance in a third fight with Fury? Uh,
2: that last part is, I guess, hard to say for sure, uh, but I, I would guess that it would be healed, uh, and and the extra time before that fight happens uh, certainly should help on that front. Uh, we all know that the left arm is a lot less important for Deontay <laughs> Wilder than the right, Um I'm feeling like it couldn't have been too bad a tear, or we probably would have sensed something was wrong watching the fight, or or at least heard something about it after the fight. But look, it's good for promoting a third fight. The more things Deontay can point at and say, I'll be better in the third fight because that was not the real 100% Deontay the last time, the better it is for, for making people believe he can even the score. Yep. Okay, a couple of lighter notes to end on. The first one involves Fury a little, but mostly it's all about New Zealand's Joseph Parker, who has been dealing with lockdown by releasing a series of tremendous videos of him singing and dancing, or at least lip syncing and dancing (laughs) to famous songs and and reenacting scenes from famous movies. In one, he's joined by Fury and various other boxing figures, but uh, a lot of the videos involve him lip syncing or dancing his heart out at home in New Zealand, while his apparently very patient and tolerant wife watches <laughs> uh, or in one case joins in I-, I love the running gag of her disapproving uh yes. and I-, I was really impressed uh, by the effort he put into his stepbrother's sweet child of mine reenactment yep. uh kieran did you have any idea that parker had this in him <laughs> none at all
1: i mean i've never met the man or talked to him so i, I had no idea about his personality but um i i think he's instantly become every neutral's favorite heavyweight uh, <laughs> yeah. with, with this uh I, I love the fact that he's not you know you mentioned that running gag i love the fact that he's not only shown real creativity but a real willingness to make himself the butt of the jokes of his video there's yeah. generally like you said at his wife's expense um yeah seriously special props to her for the role she's played in all of this um if you don't know what we're talking about do check out uh, parker's social media feeds if you want to see them for yourself uh hugely entertaining uh congratulations to him um
2: yeah and, and, and i just want to say if if uh, worst case scenario that we hope is not the case but if there happen to be no more fights this year i'm putting parker right in the mix for fighter of the year because <laughs> of these videos
1: absolutely yes just because and you know what the hell let's let's vote for him for broadcaster of the year at the BWA Awards. Sure. sure, why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, talking of broadcasters, one final quick note. Our buddy Al Bernstein, uh, his appetite clearly whetted by his spells on Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, has launched his own podcast, Al Bernstein Unplugged. His first guest is Andre Ward. Next couple guests he has lined up are Brian Custer and Bob Aram uh, We're not normally in the business of plugging <laughs> other podcasts. Who needs other boxing podcasts? Right. But in this case, with Al being a colleague, a friend, and just an all-round gentleman and good guy will make an exception. Uh, uh, is your uh, Did you get your invitation to be a guest yet? Uh, mine seems to be in the mail somewhere. But... Yeah,
2: no, I, I I didn't get mine uh, either. But uh, my assumption, and, and I'm absolutely confident this is correct, uh, is that Al wants to save me for a milestone episode. You know, some, something to make his 100th episode extra special, perhaps. Uh, something like that. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, I am looking forward to listening to Al's podcast. And uh, speaking of side ventures by our Showtime colleagues, the new issue... Issue of Ringside Seat Magazine is out, and it features the debut of Steve Farhood, who will be contributing a personal top 10 list every issue. Uh, he started this issue with the 10 worst decisions he's ever seen. Uh, and by that, I mean judges' decisions at the end of fights, not something like Mulvaney agrees to podcast with Raskin, which is (laughs) undoubtedly one of the most regrettable decisions the sport of boxing has ever seen. Uh, But anyway, the the new issue of Ringside Seat is out. So if you're a Farhood fan, uh, as all respectable people are, definitely check that out. Indeed. He's certainly finding finding ways to spend his time during the (laughs) lockdown.
1: Yes. I do need to check in with
2: him and see uh, how far he's gotten in Breaking Bad. Oh yeah, there you go. Exactly.
1: All right, that will do it. That's uh, any mention the Breaking Bad is a good opportunity to wrap this up. <laughs> yeah. uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. As a reminder, uh, this coming Friday, April twenty fourth, it will be uh, John Molina Junior night on Showtime as the network replays his bout with Mickey Bay and his outstanding twenty fourteen brawl with Lucas Matisse. Uh, those fights, um, the Johnny Tapia Pauli Ayala bouts that aired on April seventeenth. Uh, the aforementioned Diego Corrales, Jose Luis Castillo classic, and the rematch. Um, they all remain available on Showtime Anytime and Showtime On Demand. Uh, after that, on Friday, May 1st, it's Errol Spence's turn in the spotlight. Uh, Showtime airs his bouts with Lamont Peterson and Kel Brook. Uh, we will be discussing both of those on next week's podcast. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.